Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, good news for imperfect people like you and me. I'm Jeff Ebert, and this is Season 5, Episode 9. We're on 1 Corinthians Chapter 6 with the title, Transform People. So we're just going to jump right into the scripture. I'm going to be reading from Chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where the Apostle Paul continues to deliver some tough love to the troubled Christians in the ancient city of Corinth over the way that they were giving the Church of Jesus Christ a real black eye. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the year 2017, I was privileged to go with some colleagues on a fact-finding trip to the Middle East to visit ministries with refugees from the war that was going on in Syria. Now, I didn't find out until 2021 that I actually contracted latent tuberculosis on that trip because of some of the places that we visited, one in particular that I won't mention. But we went to the countries of Lebanon and Jordan, very different in their approach. In Jordan, everything was highly organized. All the refugee camps were sponsored by the United Nations, particularly those up around the northern border with Syria. The biggest one is still there, the Zatari camp, which at that time housed about 100,000 people. It was all highly regulated and controlled. Now, Lebanon was the opposite. There were no official camps in, in, for Syrian refugees. The Lebanese didn't want any more refugees because they still had over 300,000 Palestinians in the south. And so what we'd see is Bedouin tent camps set up on farms and vacant lots, and then in cities, uh, people would be in basements and, and in vacant buildings. But there were no coordinated services from the government. They had to rely on locals to do the work. So the ministries we visited in Lebanon had this great need for just volunteer initiatives because it was small neighborhood responses. Like, for example, a cluster of homes uh, got together and turned their homes into a school for about 60 children that we got to visit. Well, one afternoon, we also drove south out of Beirut to a town along the coast, and we met an older man named Abbas. Abbas grew up in Lebanon. He was from a Muslim family, had been a Muslim. But as an adult, he started to question some of the things he saw going on, particularly the way the local imam, the religious leader, was always after their money. It was always a new tax, a new fee, some way to squeeze money out of already very poor people. 
in a roundabout way, that unsettledness led Abbas to explore the teachings of Jesus. Well, it wasn't long before Abbas became a follower of Jesus, but he was very nervous about telling his family because there could be serious repercussions depending on how religious your family was. In some cases, even honor killings. And we heard testimony of people who knew of young people, particularly who got killed by their families because they became Christians. Well, the remarkable thing was when he finally got up the courage to tell his family, they all said, we knew something had happened to you. And they were happy about his new faith because they saw the change that took place in Abbas's life. Turns out that before Christ, Abbas was the biggest jerk in the family. He was difficult and mean and nobody liked him. He had a bad attitude and a bad lifestyle. He was a drunk and he'd been an embarrassment to the family for de decades. But when he became a follower of Christ, all that changed. His heart softened. He began to care about people, began to serve others. That's why we were meeting with him, because he voluntarily took on the task of distributing the Operation Mobilization food packets to the many Syrian war refugees who were squatting uh, in empty lots and basements in his neighborhood. And then he would talk with them about Jesus. And there's a real openness to the gospel among these war refugees, and the food packets helped to begin that conversation. And Abbas, he was very poor himself. There were about seven of us who were on this visit, and we couldn't fit into his apartment. It was so small. And so he served us tea and lemonade out on a back patio. And while we were just sitting with him, this uh, cars roll up, and a number of his relatives stop by to visit, and they're all carrying uh, automatic weapons, AK-47s. They're all members of Hezbollah the Islamic Syria uh, Shia military group that basically rules southern Lebanon. It's fighting in support of King Assad's army in Syria in support of Iran. What an odd experience to be having tea and cookies with a Muslim-born believer and his armed militant family members. And they're happy that Abbas has become a Christian because Jesus changed the way he lived. This is what's got the Apostle Paul so upset with the Corinthians. They know the good news about Jesus. They turn to Christ. They receive the same Holy Spirit as all believers in Jesus, and yet there was no change in their behavior. None. Zip nada. They were still living exactly as they had before they gave their hearts to Christ. It was like Christ made no difference at all in the way that they lived. And that was an embarrassment to the gospel. Basically, Paul is saying, how can you claim to be a follower of Jesus and still act this way? Well, he could ask us the same question, don't you think? How has your life been changed by your commitment to Christ? Has Jesus made a difference in the way that you treat people? Are you kinder? Are you more grace-filled? Are you still the same critical negative person that you've always been? Are you a gossip who spreads rumors and division? Are you controlling and selfish? Do you lie to people because you don't want to follow through on your promises? Are you greedy and obsessed with money? How do you treat people of the opposite sex? How do you relate to people who are a different color, who come from a different culture? There are a lot of uncomfortable questions we could ask to get at the point of what Paul is trying to say. Has Jesus actually changed your life? Here's the thing. Jesus promised transformation through his grace. He said, come to me and your scarlet sins will be white as snow. Come to me and you'll have living water refreshing your soul. Come to me, and I will give rest to your anxious heart. Come to me, and I will satisfy all your deepest hungers like the best bread you've ever eaten. Come to me, and I will show you how to love and forgive others. 
The whole message of Jesus was about a personal transformation because of his kingdom. People can be different from what they were before knowing him, different from the environment that they grew up in. No one has to be a prisoner of their past. No one. And one of the most frustrating things in the American church is that we just simply don't see much change in ourselves or in other Christians. Maybe it's our affluence, our relative security. People can say that they're Christian and just kind of go on with life just the same. There requires really very little sacrifice or no sacrifice at all. And so rather than radically reorienting their lives like a Muslim believer in a Muslim country, instead of having to reorient their lives around Jesus and his call to discipleship, Jesus is seen as a helpful addition to all an already busy life. And the idea of change is resisted because even though people say they want to live for Christ, the change that Jesus brings is much more painful than they thought, requires much more effort and self-discipline than they thought. And we think change should just kind of happen automatically. Some magic uh, dust floats down from heaven and we're good to go, right? Well, it doesn't work that way. Change requires repentance, requires surrender to biblical authority over your life. And that's where people balk. Repentance, a deeper recognition of who we really are before God, a sorrow for our sin. That's deep stuff, while what we really want is a change in our circumstances. We want God to change the other people around us. It's them that where the problem is. And so they're the ones that we want God to change because it's so much harder to say, I've got to deal with my thoughts. I've got to deal with my urges. I've got to deal with my anger. I've got to deal with my actions. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus prays that his followers will be in the world, but not of the world. And that while they are still in this world, they would experience God's power and belonging. In the world, but not of the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is contrasting how the world operates and how followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to operate. And as we've seen before, Paul often goes from addressing a specific problem faced by the Corinthians to a more general principle that's applicable throughout the centuries. Chapter Sins begins with a problem, lawsuits. Trivial, petty, nuisance lawsuits. It was something that was very prevalent in ancient Greece, where it was standard operating procedure to cheat people in the marketplace. You know, everybody did it. Put your thumb on the scale, bait and switch, give inferior quality, and you better count your change. So cheating was actually sort of the norm in Corinth. They actually had to set up a court right in the marketplace where these disputes could be aired in public and solved right away. It'd be like going on the People's Court or Judge Judy. And people watched all these cases go on. It was entertainment for them to see how these suits would get settled and who got exposed for being a cheat. <coughs> As Christians who grew up in that atmosphere were still acting the same. One brother wronged another brother by cheating him in some way. And the guy who got cheated takes the cheater to court to get his money back. Simple as that. Paul is challenging both of them to find a better way to solve their problems than by suing each other in the secular courts. The body of Christ is supposed to be a community based on the love of Jesus, supposed to respect and honor each other, and yet petty problems like this were consuming the church. Their energy was focused on these petty problems rather than on spreading the gospel. Paul is saying in this situation, it's better to love than to litigate. Better to be defrauded than to drag Christ's name through the mud in the secular court. Now, I just want to pause here and say I'm not sure this is really applicable in the business world because you're not talking about individual Christians suing other Christians. 
And I know that some disreputable people have tried to use that to manipulate Christians into not, uh, you know, uh, following through with, with litigation because of some contract dispute. I'm not sure it applies in those situations. This is one person suing another person who are both Christians. And so Paul goes on and he shames, shames them. He says, is there really no one smart enough in your whole church who can't figure this stuff out? Obviously, it's ego more than anything. <coughs> Excuse me. Someone's ego got bruised, so they want revenge. They didn't trust the church to do it right or to judge fairly. They'd never admit that to anyone. Maybe not even be able to admit it to themselves, that they feel righteous in their actions. But isn't that true today? Disputes in the church, they're just so petty. Somebody's feelings got hurt. Somebody's ego is bruised. Somebody's territory is threatened. We may not take people to court, but we sure spend a lot of time and emotional energy on our pity and frivolous disputes. Paul's point. Christians have got to find a better way to solve their personal problems than airing their dirty laundry in the public courts. But then Paul moves on to a greater principle in verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is graphically describing the world that they lived in, a world filled with messed up people and damaged lifestyles, a world summed up with one simple word, broken. In verse 9, he lists five sexual behaviors that lead people astray, heterosexual promiscuity, adultery, temple prostitution, <clears throat> and two different words for consensual homosexual acts which basically covers everything outside of the biblical understanding of one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Then in verse 10, he lists five other behaviors that also damage relationships, every kind of hustler and crook. In both lists, he's describing an ugly world where people were out to do whatever they wanted to do, regardless of God's will. And then there is this shining ray of hope in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Listen carefully, because as I read that, uh, it contains one of the most exciting, hopeful, powerful sentences in the entire Bible. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In making that list of 10 sinful behaviors, Paul wasn't talking about outsiders, but insiders. The believers in Corinth, this was their resume. In the church, there were former adulterers, people who had, had practiced all kinds of sexual promiscuity, all kinds of crooks and swindlers, lots of mixed up people. But then Christ entered in and they were changed. They were transformed into something new. The presence of Christ brings order to their chaos, freedom to their addictions and hope to their despair, sexual sanity to their confusion, healing to their emotions and their memories. The presence of Christ was enough to deal with their internal mess. Praise God. People can change. With Christ, you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to keep going down the same road. This has been the joyful message of Jesus throughout all generations. The presence of Christ is enough to deal with our, our internal mess 
no matter what it is. The real hopeful meaning of today's passage is that if Jesus could change this bunch in Corinth, he can change anybody, anywhere, anytime. That includes you and me. So why do we see so little true transformation in believers? The answer is I think we tend to live on the surface of things. We're kind of like an iceberg where one third of the iceberg's total mass is what's visible above the waterline. Two thirds lies beneath the water. And for a lot of believers, their faith in Christ is involved only in the top third of their lives, the visible, the easy, the apparent. And they don't reveal the two thirds beneath the surface, the secret side, the deeper stuff. We've got to realize there's more to being a follower of Christ than looking good on the outside and pretending things are better than what they really are. I believe we can become the transformed person God calls us to be, but we must address the core problems in our inner selves and learn to live from the inside out. Live from the inside out. The Bible says we can be transformed, Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We are being transformed into Christ's likeness with ever-increasing glory. The Greek word for transformation is metamorphosis and conjures up the image of the caterpillar in a cocoon emerging to become a butterfly. Metamorphosis is that beautiful process of transformation, but the process involves struggle. Entomologists know that if you try to help the baby butterfly out of the cocoon, it will never be able to fly and it will die. It needs the struggle. It needs the struggle to get out of that cocoon in order to gain strength for its wings. It needs the struggle to grow to its fullest potential. And in the same way for us, true transformation isn't automatic. It doesn't just fall from the sky and hit you in the head. It's Christ working in us, and it is a struggle. It is the hardest kind of work because it requires repentance, honesty, and the willingness to let Christ into our urges, into our motives, our memories, our actions. How does transformation happen? Paul says you were sanctified and justified. Basically, he's describing the same thing, not some three-step process. Here's how it works. When you come to faith in Christ, you become a child of God. You're a new creation. That means you have a new position before God the Father because of Jesus' sacrificial death. In God's sight, you are now washed, holy, justified. Immediately, you're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. It's not a life changed, but a life exchanged. You haven't changed anything at all yet. You're not any different at all the moment after you become a believer. That's not how it starts. This is not self-reform. Gospel change begins because of the great exchange. Christ takes my sin and guilt, and he gives me his holiness and forgiveness. So, so the exchanged life, that's the beginning that gives us the ability to be a new person. Right now in Christ, you are righteous before the throne of grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But it happened. Jesus saves you by his grace. But practically, however, you may feel the same. Same struggles, same sins, same shortcomings, same personality, same weaknesses, same temptations. When some folks come to Christ, they get healed instantly from an addiction or some area of sin. But most, quite frankly, don't. The change requires our active daily cooperation with the Holy Spirit. The change involves the pain of facing ourselves, and that's why we avoid it. Even though it might really set us free, it's hard to face. It's more comfortable to stay with what we know. At least we can manage it. So we tend to rearrange rather than change. We clean the outside, but not within. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 26. 
said, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. We can be so concerned with looking good on the outside, but the real challenge is on the inside. And for that, we have to get washed. We have to get washed. And that describes the daily release of the Holy Spirit to do what needs to be done in your life. Washing is a powerful image throughout the Bible, always connected with the work of the Holy Spirit. Consistently expresses what can happen when a life is turned over to the grace of God. All the filth, all the grime, all the crud washed away, cleansed. There's a beautiful sense of being cleansed and cleaned and made new before God. We're already perfect, washed and clean, but in our daily experience, we need to be washed again and again and again through daily surrender to the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us this on the night of the Last Supper when he knelt down to wash his disciples' feet. He took the servant's roll, a servant's towel, and a pan of water, went to each disciple to wash their feet, and Peter objected. So much like us, we say we want Christ, but are we willing to be washed? <clears throat> Pride enters in. Pride keeps us from the cleansing. Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And Peter's immediate reply is, the Lord will not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And this is Jesus' answer. He says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. You see, he was saying to Peter, you're already clean and you need God's daily cleansing every day. You're already clean and you need God's daily cleansing. To see how those two things work together, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, and you need to walk in the Spirit every day. We're not going to be perfect, but we can be better. We can become more like Jesus Christ through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, through Christ, people really can change. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you'd like to become a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi, just go to my website, jeffhebert.com, and you can see how to do that there. Have a great week.